term senior citizen is not easily defined. Some people consider themselves seniors when they're invited to join AARP, qualify for Medicare, or simply retire from work. Stores that offer discounts to older adults also seem to struggle with the definition. Some retailers offer breaks to shoppers over the age of 50, while others require you to be at least 62 to qualify for a discount. Good morning, I'm George Borarki, and this is Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. Regardless of how you define the term senior citizen, we all face a new set of challenges as we get older. All this month, WFUV has been highlighting organizations that work to assist older adults as part of our Strike Accord campaign. We've also been delving into many of the issues that impact people of a certain age. This morning on Cityscape, we'll be continuing that exploration, including a look into the lives of grandparents tasked with raising their grandchildren. Throughout the show, we'll be using the term senior citizen, or the word senior, to refer to older adults. But as far as an exact age that puts someone in that category, we'll leave that to you to decide. At 62, Bobby Sackman jokingly says she defines a senior as someone five years older than she is. Sackman is the director of public policy at the Council of Senior Centers and Services of New York City. She joins us now on the phone. Bobby, good morning. Hi, good morning. How are you? Good. Is New York City a good place to grow old? Well, I think New York City is a good place to grow old because we have many neighborhoods. We have, uh, you know, a whole diversity of population, and people know each other in their neighborhoods. You can walk to a store. You can use a bus. You don't have to drive. There's certainly a lot of health care around, you know, but there's a big but. And the big but is if you can get around, if you're an elderly person who maybe has mobility problems or if you need services that are not available to help you stay in your home or you can't use public transit anymore or you can't access the health care, then it's, it's a hollow dream for you. Um, so I think it's a mixed bag. Is that where your organization steps in to help these people out? That's exactly, you know, for us, I guess, where the, the rubber meets the road, as they say. Um, Council of Senior Centers and Services is the umbrella organization in New York City that represents senior centers, but we also represent a broad array of services designed to keep people at home and out of nursing homes. That could be home care and case management, housing, mental health services, elder abuse services, adult daycare services for people with Alzheimer's. You know, and the list, transportation, the list goes on and on. And it's the non-medical side, it's the social service side of long-term care that once you keep people alive, how do you give them quality of life? How do you make sure they have what they need if they can no longer get out of the home? Bobby, are today's senior citizens any different than the previous generation of seniors? We are different. I mean, you know, the boom is coming up. Um, We are a different generation. We've had a different life experience you know, again, everything in New York City, you, you can't ever make one broad statement about anybody because we're, we're too big and diverse. So while we have a generation of older adults who probably are better educated and, and some have more resources um, than previous generations, we have a very high level of poverty in this city. According to federal standards of poverty, one out of five elderly New Yorkers, that's over the age of 60, over the age of 60, one out of five live in poverty. Why do you think that number is so high? Well, I think it's high because we have um, a large minority um, population here. 
Over 50% of people over the age of 60 are uh, members of minority communities, and and unfortunately, many of them have lived a lifetime of whether it was in poverty or, or working class. And the older you get, the poorer you get unless you win the lottery because if, even if you have a pension or you have some savings, you're going to use them up as for medical care and, and other expenses. New York City has a large immigrant population. Is life any different for older immigrants here in New York City than native-born seniors? Well, I think life for older you know, immigrants is going to be a particular challenge in a city like New York. Again, on one hand, you can probably find a community here that you fit into in terms of they came from your country, they speak your language, they share your, your, you know, your traditions and culture, where you might not find that elsewhere. But because of the size of the city, we have a lot of immigrants coming here old now. They, they didn't come here years ago and raise their families, especially this is true in the Asian population coming from China or Korea. And they, they come with their families, uh, so they're not separated. They help take care of the grandchildren. And by the way, they're flocking to the senior centers because these are their peer communities because, A, there's a sense of isolation. Imagine coming to Flushing, Queens, or to Sunset Park, you know, at age 70. Now, you might say, okay, you know, we call these our Chinatowns, but nevertheless, it's not where they came from. And so the, the senior centers and, and all the services we offer, we, we try to do it in as culturally competent and bilingual, you know, manner as, as is possible. And I think what happens is elderly immigrants aren't often thought of. We used to have funding for ESL classes uh, through city council. It's totally gone. And people were learning English, you know, enough to function in their communities. And some even went on to become citizens because the uh, senior center staff would really walk them through it and help them out. Talking about funding decisions, the Bloomberg administration has proposed closing more than 100 senior centers in New York City if the state cuts $25 million in funding for senior services here in the city. What impact, Bobby, would that have on the city's senior population? Up to 10,000 seniors would go to their senior center in April, and they would find either the doors would be closed or they would be closing down in the process of closing down. So one example is two and a half million meals a year would be lost to the elderly in this city because of the seniors that would no longer have a center. Two and a half million meals is about 14 million meals provided annually at senior centers and Meals on Wheels. That's huge, and and then there would be thousands of hours of exercise classes, of social services, of computer training, the ESL I mentioned, and many other things that you know basically keep people alive and, and active. We're clearly trying to balance the budget on the backs of um, of older New Yorkers who did not cause this deficit. So when do you expect that we'll know for sure whether this money gets well, put back in the budget? The budget will be done by the end of March. And it will be an on-time budget from everything we hear. And so we will know within a couple of weeks of the fate of 105 senior centers and 10,000 or more seniors. Bobby, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Bobby Sackman is the Director of Public Policy at the Council of Senior Centers and Services of New York City. The group is online at cscs-ny.org. As Sackman referenced, Meals on Wheels is one of the organizations that will be impacted if proposed budget cuts go through. Meals on Wheels is a delivery service that brings hot food to the elderly around New York City. 
Many senior centers run the program as part of their services. And as Sarah Reynolds reports, it's proven to be more than just a hot meal. Every day of the week, 73-year-old Joseph Logodisi gets a hot meal delivered to his apartment. He lives on the 10th floor in subsidized housing on the Upper East Side of Manhattan, just a few blocks from the water. That's our code. Three quick knocks, he knows it's me. Al Fields delivers meals for the Stanley Isaacs Neighborhood Center's Meals on Wheels program in Logodisi's neighborhood. Fields usually delivers about 25 meals a day, mostly on foot. Each client gets a full meal with meat and vegetable as well as milk, juice, and fruit. Logodisi's apartment is small with big windows looking out to more tall buildings. His living room is filled with well-worn furniture and he plops down into one of the chairs, the one he usually sits in. Logodisi lives alone, but his walls are covered in photographs of his family. His parents immigrated to New York from Italy before he was born. That's my wife and I, my, my, daughter's, my daughter's first birth uh, uh, wedding. And that's my daughter with my mother-in-law. The Stanley Isaacs Neighborhood Center works in partnership with other community centers in the area to deliver hot meals all the way from 59th Street up to 149th on the east side of Manhattan. The program is funded by New York City's Department for the Aging and by a nonprofit, City Meals on Wheels, on the weekends. According to Wanda Wooten, director of the Stanley Isaacs Neighborhood Center, it was one of New York City's first centers to deliver food to the elderly in the 1960s. Many of the Meals on Wheels recipients don't have family nearby, but want to live at home as they age, a philosophy the center supports. Wooten says their program delivers nearly 400 meals every day, and though the main goal is to provide healthy food, it also is a lifeline. The delivery staff is so important because that is the one face, perhaps the only face they see every day. On some of his deliveries, Fields has knocked on an apartment door to find the senior had fallen and couldn't get up unable to reach the phone to call for help. Other senior centers that provide this service around the city said the same thing. The meal delivery program has saved lives. For Logodisi, Al Fields is the only face he sees every day. His wife died in 2004, and his kids live out of town. I never stood at home like this. I used to, when I was living in Harlem, I was a little younger then. I used to hang out in the bars, hang out with friends. You know, I worked as a superintendent 55 years, as a general contractor, plumber, TV repairman, everything. I did it all. Yeah, I miss working. Yes, I do. Yeah. The recipients of a home-delivered meal are at least 60 years old. They receive little to no home care and are no longer able to prepare their own food. In the 2010 fiscal year, the nonprofit City Meals on Wheels reported delivering 2 million meals to over 16,000 New Yorkers. Due to severe city budget cuts this year, the Department for the Aging may have to close 105 of the 256 senior centers around the city. The Stanley Isaac Senior Center is not on the chopping block this time around, but it's been estimated that these cuts would impact 8,000 seniors all around the city. Fields and Logodisi visit for a few minutes. When he can, Logodisi says he tries to donate money to the Stanley Isaacs Neighborhood Center, something his wife used to do. My wife was a very, very big donator. She used to donate to, this, to the fire department, the police department, the Red Cross, the Blue Cross. <laughs> you name it, she did it. But I was wondering where my money was going. <laughs> so I told her, I says, Lita, what are you doing? I said, oh, these people, they're good, they're good. I said, okay, fine. <laughs> I'll leave this inside for you, Joe. Fields puts the bag of food on the kitchen counter. He has to get back to work. Joe. They say goodbye until the okay. next hot meal. For WFUV, this is Sarah Reynolds. 
Raising children isn't easy, but raising grandchildren comes with its own set of challenges. According to the latest data available from the U.S. Census, there are approximately 2.5 million grandparents raising grandchildren in the United States. About 84,000 of those grandparents live here in New York City. There's a unique residence in the South Bronx that's the only one of its kind in the U.S. It's an apartment building designed for grandparents raising their grandchildren. The Presbyterian Senior Services and West Side Federation for Senior and Supportive Housing Grandparent Family Apartments opened in 2005 and is home to 50 grandfamilies. Cityscape's Andrea McCreary spent some time at the residence. The PSS WSF Grandparent Family Apartments is a safe haven in a rough environment. The apartments are located in the South Bronx, in a neighborhood where officials say there's a lot of poverty and gang activity. The grandparent family apartment building is welcoming, but guarded. A man at the front desk monitors who goes in and out. It's very clean and the floors are polished. Artwork created by the children is displayed on the walls. We like to highlight their talents, so we post it all through the building. That's Michelle Chapel, director of the Kinship Program at Presbyterian Senior Services. She works closely with the residents, including the kids. We know we have two murals with scenes to try to broaden their horizons. Example, that said, Martin Luther King, he had a dream. What's yours? We try to open their minds. We try to get them to see from point A to point B. Okay, that's the whole concept. This morning, the kids are off from school for winter recess and several of them are hanging out in the rec rooms here. The energy is high, and children have free reign to entertain themselves. They are on Facebook, watching TV, playing video games on a PlayStation 3, and two young girls are playing a makeshift game of pool. It's really fun because we get to take turns. At the same time, in the community room down the hall, a group of grandmothers is playing a low-stakes game of bingo. To be eligible to live in these apartments, grandparents need to be 62 or older, have eligible low income, and have legal custody of their grandchildren. The reasons grandparents raise their grandchildren run the gamut, but regardless of the reason, they all face similar sets of challenges. Catherine Martinez is Deputy Director of Presbyterian Senior Services. Besides the financial initially, it's just understanding the whole uh, generation gap. You know, what are the current needs of teens today, um, the current trends, and and how to deal with uh, issues that concern just being a teenager. Martina says support is important to grandparents facing these challenges. And she says the programs and support groups provided at the apartments make a difference. Our services has really allowed our grandparents to be empowered as grandparents and, and feel that there is a light at the end of the tunnel, that this task and challenge that they've accepted, it's okay, and that support has allowed them to maintain and, and, and feel that, that they can do it. Grandparent Annie Barnes had been taking care of her two grandchildren for a while before moving to the grandparent apartments. After raising two kids of her own, she says she was doing okay, but is now glad to have the extra help. It really wasn't a challenge. I did it with my two, so I had a pretty good idea of what I had to do, where I was going, and what have you, but the only difference is I didn't have the support group here to help me out. But now I, I had them. So that helped out a lot. I asked Annie if she ever imagined she would be raising her grandchildren. No, no, no. <laughs> I had my own plans. I had my own plans. 
I worked like 12, 16 hours per day. And when I retired, I had my plans to travel. So I had to take my retirement money, my Social Security money, and support them for 17 years. Annie says after her son died, she had little choice but to take her grandkids in. Well, Shaquille was born two and a half pound preemie. Alonzo was born with syphilis, addicted to drugs. Their father got killed right after Alonzo was born. And the mother's wherever doing whatever. So when Shaquille was born, they was in the system, both of them was. And someone had to step in and take care of them. So if they family, then that's what I had to do. The Grandparent Family Apartments works to highlight the accomplishments of the kids who grew up here as a way to inspire younger generations. There are pictures of grandchildren who went on to college or achieved other successes. And some of the grandchildren even start to work at the apartments because they find it fulfilling. Tariq Peart, age 21, has lived at the apartments for nearly six years. He lives with his grandmother and works part-time at the apartments, helping run an after-school program. You know, I see the teenagers are a bit more active. You know, they want to keep to themselves. They want to stay to themselves and just play what they want to play or just hang out and just talk about absolutely nothing. While the kids are all, all, all around the place, and they just love to do everything. You know, they want to play pool, and then five minutes later they want to jump rope, and then five minutes later they want to paint something. You know, I love that about children. They just like to do everything. The apartments offer everything from educational programs to martial arts for the kids. Christopher Brown is the educational coordinator. He talked with me about the programs as he handed out graham crackers to energetic children. The athletic ones are always the more popular ones, and I think that's because they have a lot of energy, emotional distress, and things like that that they need to discharge. So we always get high turnouts for like boxing, wrestling, uh, martial arts, those kinds of things. But the future of these programs is uncertain. Budget cuts have been a problem for the grandparent apartments for some time. In November, they had to cut their front desk staff in half and further cuts might be on the way from Albany. Remus Jason, executive director of Presbyterian Senior Services, says he's afraid vital programs may need to go. And it's literally been a slow death by a thousand tiny cuts. Um, so any further cuts uh, of whatever size are going to be devastating. And um, without the funding, there will not be the after-school support, the academic support, the vocational support, the social services in place to make sure that those kids stay successful. Michelle Chapel, director of the Kinship Program at PSS, says she's witnessed many amazing transformations of children at the grandparent apartments, highlighting the story of a young woman named Mariah Burnett who came to the apartments from a rough background. When she first came, she was a very emotional, okay, angry young lady who, how can I say, always had outbursts. Right now, she's channeled her emotions. She's able to express herself in, in a more positive way. Mariah is 16, and she says she's happy living at the apartments with her grandmother and sisters. It's like a new light. It was like so much different, because I used to live in a project, you know, in Harlem, and it's different. I'm in one building, and I could, if I any type of need help or anything, I can go to anyone in the building because we're like a family here. Mariah keeps a scrapbook that includes pictures of friends and family and poems about her feelings, including this one about her father. It's called Dad with a question mark. Dad, 
father. I never knew him, never seen the picture of him. Does that bother me? Not much. It barely passes my mind. Mariah has friends who she realizes aren't as fortunate as she is to have a supportive environment like this. She says even though the neighborhood isn't the best, she's grateful for the shelter of the small community of grandparents, grandchildren, and staff here, and she has high hopes for her future. She hopes to work in law enforcement. I'm Andrea McCrary for WFUV News. This is Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. Good morning once again. I'm George Boldarki. Today, as part of WFUV's Strike Accord campaign, we're exploring some of the challenges facing older adults, including seniors in the LGBT community. The coming out process is one that can be very difficult for those who identify as lesbian, gay, bisexual, or transgender. But what can be even harder, according to the group SAGE, which stands for Services and Advocacy for GLBT Elders, is the process of stepping back into the closet out of fear of discrimination. WFUV's Kate McGee examines how LGBT seniors have a pattern of hiding their sexual identity, afraid of not getting equal treatment. Meet Denise Bonenfant a 64-year-old lesbian who now lives outside New York City. Her partner of 32 years, Sonny, died in 2007 of cancer, a disease that requires frequent hospital visits, overnight stays, and doctor's appointments. For six years, Bonenfant helped her partner through her illness, but she introduced herself as Sonny's sister, not her partner. A friend of ours had a very bad experience being denied access to her partner. I decided that I was not ever going to let that happen with us. So to every doctor, nurse, official, and on every document, we either one of us signed, we lied. Bonenfant isn't alone. According to SAGE, many LGBT older adults who need extra assistance, whether it be in hospitals, nursing homes, or in-home care, are scared to reveal their sexual identity. The group's John Genke says they're afraid they'll face verbal and physical discrimination, neglect, or prejudice. He says that can affect the quality and type of care they receive. People will avoid seeing doctors, getting home care because they're too afraid and therefore they get sicker, they don't, they don't get the help they want so they might fall, they don't get the uh, medications they might need. Sandy Warsaw came out as a lesbian in her mid-40s. Although she never felt the need to hide her sexual identity, she knows many people who have, especially when they've used in-home care. They did strip down their homes of any pictures and any other signs that they were lesbians. And the fact was that they were active in the gay and lesbian community, especially in the lesbian community, and they felt they had to remove anything that would show that this was the case. Sage's John Genke says many times this fear stems from what he calls internalized homophobia, a feeling ingrained in older LGBT adults from their childhood. People had such negative experiences with institutions in other parts of their lives, such as the police or the healthcare system or even the clergy, etc. They don't trust institutions. But he says it goes beyond that. Genghi says many times seniors fear various cultural or religious beliefs of health care workers can also lead to discrimination. He recalls the story of one couple in which a partner needed in-home care. They had a home care worker who had been with them for years. She was a Jehovah's Witness. And they are very, as as I understand it, opposed to homosexuality, to being gay. And so the two women lived together in front of this woman who was with them all the time as if they were sisters. Susan Willey with the Visiting Nurse Service of New York says outward discrimination has no place in home health care. I think there are some nurses who probably do have some bias 
but just as a nurse or a physician, any kind of medical professional has to put aside their bias and their feelings and to be anti-discriminatory. Willie says her organization doesn't discriminate against any patients, including LGBT senior citizens, but nurses aren't specifically trained in cultural competency either. Advocates say that's not uncommon in elder care. They also say what makes matters worse is that many LGBT older adults lack a solid support system. According to a study from the Brookdale Center at Hunter College, 75% of LGBT senior citizens live alone, compared to 33% of the general senior population, and 90% of LGBT older adults don't have children. Bonnenfant says that can be isolating, but it wouldn't stop her from hiding information again. I'm an aging lesbian. I'm isolated, poor, and alone. I don't have family to turn to. And if I decide to join a local senior center in my little town, I probably wouldn't mention I'm a lesbian. For Cityscape, I'm Kate McGee. With us now to talk more about issues facing LGBT seniors is Allison Aldridge. She's a policy associate with SAGE, which again stands for Services and Advocacy for GLBT Elders. Allison, good morning. Good morning. I guess I should call you Allie, right? You yeah, like that? that's fine. Thank you. How is growing old different for the LGBT community compared to their straight counterparts? Well, there's a lot of factors that contribute to the differences. Um, Three sort of of the most important ones are the health disparities that LGBT older adults face. And that is because 80% of the long-term care in this country is typically provided by family members, by blood relatives, by spouses. Um, And that's not always the case um, for the LGBT community members, especially um, for older adults who many times um, have been ostracized by their family members, have been kind of isolated from family members. And so LGBT older adults oftentimes rely heavily on professional services or would like to rely heavily on professional services of healthcare providers, um, doctors, pharmacists, nurses. But oftentimes, because there's no mandate that these uh, healthcare providers have cultural competency trainings, um, LGBT older adults don't feel comfortable accessing mainstream healthcare um, services. So oftentimes, what happens, um, what we see in the community is that these individuals go back into the closet or don't access these services at all. So what we see is delayed care seeking in LGBT older adults. And so they're not seeking out health care provisions for depression, for anxiety, for any number of physical ailments. Um, And that's a real issue for the LGBT community, which already has a higher health disparities overall, not just for older adults. Does SAGE here in New York City work with senior centers and nursing homes to provide that diversity training? Yes, absolutely. We have a staff member who goes um, all over the city um, and sometimes outside of the city as well to do these trainings for staff. But again, oftentimes these uh, healthcare centers, um, long-term care nursing homes, senior centers are calling us. It's, it's nearly impossible for a stage to kind of um, do the, the number of trainings that are necessary. But um, So we do have a staff person that does do these trainings and hopefully also does the training of trainers who will then go on to help healthcare providers provide culturally appropriate provisions for um, their patients, for all sorts of um, their caregiving needs. I mean, and this can be anything from improving intake forms so that the form just doesn't say, married, divorced, single. Um, So it has provisions for partner, 
um, or more general language about spouse, to having images of LGBT older adults, same-sex couples on the walls or in their promotional material. Um, there's any number of things that these healthcare providers can do just upon initial contact to make the queer community feel more um, welcome in these settings. How hard is it for the survivor in a same-sex relationship to access the benefits of the person lost, whether it be Social Security or other benefits? It can be next to impossible depending on the state. I mean, there's any number of barriers uh, facing same-sex couples because of the legal the legal barriers that exist for the safety net. Um, there Social Security, Medicare, pension benefits, because there's the those are all kind of presupposed around this idea of marriage that most LGBT individuals in this country do not have um, the legal right to do. So, of course, they, over time, all of these individual um, benefits that accrue, retirement benefits, um, when a spouse passes away, these inheritance, um, it, it's not, you can't pass on an inheritance tax-free to a spouse, a same-sex spouse. So there's a number of financial um, implications for this over the lifetime for an LGBT individual. And that also is a contributing factor to the higher poverty rates that the LGBT individuals face. 4.9 of gay couples, uh, elder gay couples, um, live in poverty as opposed to um, the statistic for heterosexual couples, which is 4.6%. So we're seeing increased levels of financial insecurity as well. Allie, thank you so much for coming in. Thank you very much for having me. That was Allison Aldridge, a representative from SAGE, which stands for Services and Advocacy for GLBT Elders. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. Don't forget, you can check out our archives at wfuv.org slash cityscape. Find us on Facebook and Twitter. We're listed on both as WFUV's Cityscape. And for more information on WFUV's Strike Accord campaign on seniors, check out wfuv.org slash strike a court. I'm George Boldarki. My thanks to senior producer Andrea McCreary and producer Marlene Chin. Have a great weekend.